How does it feel really, a therapist might say. It must be very frustrating when your mind screeches to a halt. I need to be understood. Let's say I was molested by a tree. It doesn't matter that trees are incapable of such things or that I have a fear of raindrops. The worst thing you can do is respond, rain isn't harmful, you go out in the rain all the time, in fact, you just came in from the rain, sorry. That negation of my feelings actually damages me. I need compassion for the pain underneath so the memory of the original fucked up thing done to me can emerge and I might heal. Since my current therapist has no fucking clue, I'll continue to cancel. Ah, uh, the naked room and the revelation. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. In short, the period was very much like the present period. You're listening to Community Radio, KBOO Portland. This is Sun Lee. I'm the host of the Grateful Dead and Friends show every second Saturday of the month from noon to 2 p.m. Been a part of this amazing collective of music lovers for around 15 years. Not exactly sure when I started. I did know that we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the show being aired on KWU. And to celebrate, we'd like to raise $10,000 for the station in order to purchase the studio transmitter link, a vital piece of equipment that KWU needs to get sound to listen. If you are able, please consider donating today. You can visit kboo.fm slash grateful or you can text from your phone G-D-A-F to 44321 that's G-D-A-F to 44321 or go to kboo.fm slash grateful I also want to thank you in advance for your support for the show over the last 20 years our listeners and members are an amazing group of humans and without you this show would not be possible this is kboo portland community radio for the pacific northwest right now it's the bedtime radio show for grown-ups gremlin time good evening and welcome once again to uh gremlin time this is fortunato uh I'm going to re-air one of my favorite uh, programs today. We uh, always like to present stories that take place on the railroads because it's a good excuse to put in a lot of sound effects, you know, (laughs) and also to use some, like, stirring railroad-type music or just stirring music, I guess. Uh, Just try to set the mood. I'm going to present a little piece about the railway guides that um, were available and uh, just reading them. People have found fascinating just the descriptions of the railway lines and everything. 
the different um, parts of the country, all the different towns it mentions. Like you'll mention, like all these different towns where battles in the Civil War took place and, and other stuff like that. So um, this is a, a little piece uh, that I came across in a book about uh, railway stories. You know, there used to be whole magazines, whole lines of magazines about stories set on the railroads, and that's where our stories this evening come from. Um, a reader on this is Robert Jefferson, who used to be a um, uh, the news director here at KBU over a decade or so ago, and he had this wonderful voice, and he used to work at NPR. I think he lives in Japan now, uh, and so he was very nice to read this uh, piece for us about the railway guide. Another book which he used to see lying in the office also caught Richard's fancy. It was a thick-bound volume, always carefully consulted by the salesboys before going off on their travels. Richard found it more to his taste than most fiction. It was called The Official Guide of the Railways and Steam Navigation Lines of the United States, Canada, Mexico, and Cuba. It was filled with timetables and the rather violently simplified maps of railroad companies in which the route of the company under consideration is shown as strong and direct as possible, while all the others are very spiderweb. In odd moments, Richard would pore over this massive concordance and gathered much miscellaneous information. The names of the famous limited trains sounded to him like bugle calls in the distance. What a fascinating book it is. The old copy that first enthralled Roe is long since vanished. But Hubbard stopped in at Britano's to buy a new one. Over 1,600 pages of strong American romance for $2. His patriotism was a little startled to find advertisements of English railways in the forefront of the work, calmly announcing themselves as the fastest train service in the world. It was the smaller railroads of the Middle West or South that seemed like fairy tales to Richard. The Detroit, Toledo and Ironton. You leave Detroit at 8.15 a.m. and arrive in Ironton at 7.05 p.m. Just in time for dinner, he reflected. No passenger trains on Sundays. Or the Green Bay and Western. You would rise very early in that bright Wisconsin air and have coffee and fried ham. How clear the birch trees would stand round Lake Winnebago. And after passing through Scandinavia, Clover, Independence, Arcadia, you would be in Winona, 213.9 miles, at 2.50 p.m. Or maybe take the branch line up to Sturgeon Bay, or even more thrilling, see the dotted line across Lake Michigan. The car ferry, a magic sound, to Ludington. That would lead on toward White Cloud, Owoso, Saginaw, Ann Arbor. The names read in newspapers or seen in the office files or overheard in salesman's talk suddenly became real. The railway guide became Richard's outline of history, his story of philosophy. There was the Toledo, Peoria and Western, the Peoria Road, which doesn't seem to go near Toledo at all on its own rails, but begins at Eppner, Indiana. He found himself in imagination on a mixed train, passenger service connections uncertain, passing a long night on the way to Keokuk. Number three leaves Efner at 8.30 p.m. 
It arrives in Peoria Yard at 5.20 a.m. There must be a chance for coffee and sinkers at Peoria Yard. And he would go out on number 103, good old number 103, at 7.45, and arrive at Keokuk, 2.30 p.m. Is there a bookstore in Keokuk? He asked Miss Mack. There are greater names, too. Denver and Rio Grande, the Monon Route, more formally listed as the Chicago, Indianapolis, and Louisville. That would take you through French Lick on the Tippecanoe or the Hoosier or the Daylight Limited Observation Library Car. The Norfolk and Western offers the Pocahontas and the Cavalier. Pocahontas leaves Norfolk at 1.20 p.m. and gets you to Cincinnati at 7.55 the next morning. And from the window, you see Roanoke, Blue Ridge, Lynchburg, Appomattox, Disputanta. Perhaps you're on the Pocahontas, Goodwill and Winona branch. If so, stops to take revenue passengers and to leave passengers from Hagerstown and Shenandoah Junction. Surely you're a better American for brooding on those names. The nickel plate was a road he often heard Herman Schmaltz mention with casual familiarity. Herman, he figured out would be leaving Fostoria at 11.35 a.m. Eastern Time and proceeding via Arcadia. You'd be surprised how many Arcadias there are. Findlay, Lima, Central Time here, Coldwater, Fort Recovery, Muncie. Probably he would stop over at Muncie before going on to Montmorency, Otterbein, Oxford, Boswell, East Lynn, Arrowsmith, Bloomington, the Pair Marquette, Another name to start one reading history. Again, an early start. Leave Port Huron, 6 a.m., and through Teddo, Palms, Harbor Beach, Tyre, Bad Axe to Point of Arc. Does the name Bad Axe give a vivid picture of some old lumberman's disgust, now memorized forever? The Southern timetables were rich in suggestion. He saved up many questions to ask George Work when the latter returned from his territory. Consider the minor twigs of the Chesapeake and Ohio Company, the Hawks Nest Branch, Horse Creek Branch, Loop Creek, and White Oak Branch, Piney River and Paint Creek Branch. Or on the luxurious side, here is the Sportsman to Old Point Comfort, Observation Lounge, Radio Equipped. That, of course, is of later era. And the FFV to White Sulphur Springs, Imperial Salon Cars, the subsidiaries of the Southern Railway, the Asheville and Craggy Mountain, the State University Railroad, the Crescent Limited to New Orleans, women's lounge, shower bath, maid and manicure service, movable chairs, magazines, writing desk. The Ponce de Leon to Florida. Names on the map, Manassas, Brandy, Culpeper, Rapidan, Charlottesville, Sweetbriar, Winsap, Alta Vista. The steamers on the Chesapeake leave Baltimore on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday for York River Landings. The Old Bay Line, Table de Hood Dinner, $1.25, Dining Room and Gallery, Upper Deck, Forward. The Mobile and Ohio, Seaboard Airline, the Orange Blossom Special, the Little Maryland and Pennsylvania Railroad, loved as the Ma and Pa, from Baltimore to York, Pennsylvania, 77 miles in four and a half hours. The Aberdeen and Rockfish in North Carolina leave Aberdeen, 8.35 a.m., arrive Fayetteville, 45 miles, 10.50. The Watch Chunk Switchback Railway. 
Cable and Gravity Road to Mount Pisgah, distance of circuit 18 miles, the oldest railroad in the U.S. The Cairo, Truman and Southern, in operation for freight and passenger service from Weona Junction, Arkansas to Weona, Arkansas, 3.83 miles. This good little outfit was evidently a family affair. President, J.H. Schutte. First Vice President, J. Schutte. Second Vice President, E.W. Schutte. Third Vice President, Philip Schutte. Treasurer and General Manager, R.H. Schutte. Secretary and Traffic Manager, Fred Schutte. Bigger game by contrast, the Atlantic Coastline with its Florida Special, Palmetto Limited, the Tar Heel, New York to Wilmington, North Carolina, the Flamingo, the Dixie Flyer to Jacksonville, Illinois Central, the Creole and the Chickasaw, the MKT, always known as the Katy, proud of the Blue Bonnet, the Texas Special, the Katy Limited. There is no pleasanter courtesy, said the Katy, than to be invited into the diner for afternoon tea and to have the steward suggest and provide chess, checkers, or dominoes for games. Richard thought with renewed admiration of these giants of the traveling leagues who had shared such transcontinental amenities. There is no end to the lure of these names. You see the little flags fluttering, smoke pouring from squat racing funnels, the flicker of roaring wheels, taillights on a midnight curve. The Sooner, the Alamo Special, the Lone Star St. Louis Southwestern proclaims the Blue Street, America's fastest freight train. Chicago and Northwestern is perhaps as poetic as any of its christenings. The Corn King Limited with Solarium Sleeping Car, the Mountain Bluebird, the Columbine, the Gold Coast Limited, the Portland Rose, the Nightingale, the Viking, the Badger State Express. From the Solarium Sleeping Car, greet Pocatello, Minidoka, Boise, Pendleton, Spokane, Tacoma, Seattle, or the Union Pacific. The Oregon Trail Express, the Yellowstone Express, the Pony Express, the Owl. Sleepers parked in Portland for occupancy until 8 a.m. The Southern Pacific and its proud Sunset Limited and Argonauts, on which Charity, DBS Employee, Livestock Contract, Banana Messenger, and Circus Script Tickets will be honored in coaches only. The Sunbeam, the Lark, the Apache. And here, he imagined ventures into Mexico. Leave El Paso, 11.15 a.m., and by way of Ciudad Juarez, Montezuma, Chihuahua, Jimenez, Torreon, Aguascalientes, Querétaro, reach Mexico City, 10 a.m., two days later. The Santa Fe, with its Fred Harvey dining car service, Hal Sam Erskine, who used to make the coast, spoke of those royal meals. The chief the Navajo, the missionary. Because of late-hour arrival at the petrified forest detour, trains 23 and 24 temporarily discontinued. Frequently, the Grand Canyon Limiteds are stopped at dining stations for the evening meal, offering patrons choice of dining aboard the train or at one of our artistic station hotels. Hollywood stars and the stars in every profession and business go Santa Fe and ride the chief. Alternative temptation. Go to Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul, America's longest electrified railroad. The Olympian, the first transcontinental roller-bearing train. The Pioneer, Chicago to Minneapolis. The Sioux, the Tomahawk, or the CB&O. The Aristocrat, the American Royal, 
the Overland Express. The Great Northern, the Empire Builder saves a business day between Chicago and Puget Sound. The Canadian Pacific, the Dominion, the Kootenay Express, Sioux Express, the Red Wing, the Alouette, the Royal York. Wasn't there something once in Homer known as the Catalog of Ships? Was it any more thrilling than this muster of trains and stations? Sometimes, studying the railway guide, you find yourself a long way from Fifth Avenue. The railway guide, perhaps even more than the Erskine Atlas, made the curved and steel-netted surface of the earth actual to Richard. When Miss Max saw him poring over those timetables, she knew he was a born salesman. And that was our former news director here at uh, KBOO Portland, uh, Robert Jefferson, reading a piece called The Railway Guide. You got to hand it to Robert. He got all the names right. Efner, Pocahontas, all of them. Clickitat. I don't think that was in there, but uh, he he uh, really did a wonderful job on this piece. It really, uh, you know, it's like a whole look at America right there in one little short story. And so that was called The Railway Guide. I, it's from a big novel, and I cannot remember the author of the novel, and I couldn't find it. Uh, but I found it in a collection of short stories, which, short stories, which are no longer at the library, called, a book called Short Lines, a collection of uh, railway fiction. And I believe I also found our featured story there as well. Uh, we've got a big 3D radio cast production here featuring the wonderful Annie Berkshire, who, uh, you know, she was in like Twilight, and I think she's in The Dark Divide recently, and we were very lucky to have her come down, and she did some nice readings on the Gremlin Time under the name of Abergine Plum. And so Annie plays uh, Sylvia, the young woman who uh, steps up to control the big steam engine that's pulling the Overland Express on a special run. Uh, we've also got uh, David Chelsea, uh, uh, narrating. Uh, I have a part in there, I think. And uh, Ralph Stefferson has a part in there. I think uh, Woody Creek is in there. So um, it's a big production. Uh, most of the music is by Aaron Copeland. Uh, some pieces by WC are slipped in there as well. Lots of sound effects. And so let's uh, settle in. Let's hope the lights are out because you really want to imagine uh, this whole story set in wintertime the Night Run of the Overland by Elmore Elliott Peak. snow. The switch lamps at Valley Junction twinkled faintly through the swirling flakes. A broad band of light from the night operator's room shot out into the gloom, and it too was thickly powdered. Aside from this, the scattered houses of the little hamlet slept in darkness, all save one. Through the drawn curtains of a cottage which squatted in the right angle formed by the intersecting tracks a hundred yards or more from the station, a light shone dully. Inside, a young woman with a book in her lap sat beside a sickbed. 
On the bed lay a young man of perhaps 30. They were not an ordinary couple, nor of the type which prevailed in Valley Junction. The rugged strength of the man which shone through even the pallor of sickness was touched and softened by an unmistakable gentleness of birth, and the dark eyes which rested motionless upon the further wall were thoughtful and liquid with intelligence. The young woman was yet more striking. Her loose gown, girdled at the waist with a tasseled cord, only half concealed the sturdy, sweeping lines of the form beneath. Her placid, womanly face was crowned with a glorious mass of burnished auburn hair. Her blue eyes, now fixed solicitously upon her husband's face, were dark with what seemed to be an habitual earnestness of purpose, and her sweet mouth drooped seriously. After a moment, though, she shook off her pensive mood. What are you thinking of, dear? She asked with a brightening face. Of you, answered her husband gravely tightening his grasp upon the hand she had slipped into his. Comparing your life in this wretched place, Sylvia, with what it was before I married you, and thinking of that wonderful thing called love, which can make you content with the change. The young woman bent forward with a little spasmodic movement and laid her beautiful hair upon the pillow beside her husband's dark strands. For a little, she held herself in a kind of breathless tension, her hand upon his further temple, her full, passionate lips pressed tight against his cheek. Not content, my heart's husband, but happy. After a moment, she lifted herself and quietly smoothed her ruffled hair. I mustn't do that again, she said demurely. The doctor said you are not to be excited. I guess I won't allow you to think any more on that subject either, she added with pretty tyranny. Only this, Ben. Papa will forgive us someday. He's good. Just give him some time. Someday you'll put away your dear foolish pride and let me write to him and tell him where we are, no matter if he did forbid it. And he'll write back, take my word for it, and say, come home, children, and be forgiven. But whether he does or not, I tell you, sweetheart, I would sooner flutter about this little dovecote of ours and ride on the engine with you on bright days than be the mistress of the finest palace Papa's money could buy. For a moment the pair looked the love they could not speak. Then the spell was broken by the distant scream of a locomotive, half drowned in the howling wind. Sylvia glanced at the clock. There's the overland. She's three minutes late. The wind is dead against her. Someday, dear, if you want to, you will hold the throttle of that engine, and I shall be the proudest girl in the land. With a fine, unconscious loyalty to the corporation which gave them bread and butter, they listened in silence to the dull roar of the incoming train. But instead, a moment later, of the usual thunderous burst as the train swept by and the trembling of earth, They heard the grinding of brake shoes, the whistle of the air, and then, in the lull which followed, the thumping of the pump like some great, excited heart. At this unexampled occurrence, the sick man threw his wife a startled glance, and she sprang to the front window and drew back the curtain. She was just turning away again, still unsatisfied, when there came a quick, imperative rap at the door. Instantly connecting this rap with the delayed train, Sylvia flung the door wide open, revealing three men, the foremost of whom she recognized as the night operator at the junction. Mrs. Fox, 
This is the general superintendent, Mr. My name is Howard, madam. Said the official for himself, unceremoniously pushing forward. We're in trouble. Our engineer had a stroke of apoplexy 15 miles back, and I want your husband to take this train. I know he's sick, but... But he's too sick, sir, to hold his head up. What's the trouble? Called Fox sharply from his bed. An instant's hush fell over the little group at the door, and then they all, as if moved by one impulse, filed quickly back to the sick room. Mr. Fox, I hate to ask a sick man to get out of bed and pull a train, but we're tied up here hard and fast with not another engineer in sight, and every minute that train stands there, the company loses $1,000. If you can pull her through to Stockton, it'll be the best two hours' work that you ever did. I will give you $500. Fox had at first risen to his elbow, but now he sank back, dizzy and trembling from weakness. In a moment, though, he was up again. I can't do it, Mr. Howard. I'm too sick. If it weren't a physical impossibility, if I weren't too dizzy to hold my head up. He broke off abruptly and pressed his hand in a dazed way to his brow. (sighs) Then he fixed his excited eyes upon his wife. The other men followed his gaze, plainly regarding him as out of his head. Well, I'll be... But Sylvia turned pale and leaned against the wall for support. She had caught her husband's meaning. She'll take the train, sir. And she'll take it through safe. She knows an engine as well as I. And every inch of the road. Sylvia, you must go. It is your duty. The superintendent, staggered at this amazing proposition, I don't know, gasped and stared at the young woman. She stood with her dilated eyes fastened upon her husband, her chest rising and falling, and blood-red tongues of returning color shooting through her cheeks. Yet even in that crucial moment, when her little heart was fluttering like a wounded bird, something in Sylvia's eye, something hard and stubborn, fixed the skeptical superintendent's attention, Hmm. and he drew a step nearer. Well... Sylvia, with twitching nostrils and swelling throat, turned upon him almost desperately. I will go, she said in a low, resigned voice. But someone must stay here with him. This young man will attend to all that, never fret. Cried Howard gaily in his relief, turning to the night operator. Don't worry about a thing, ma'am. I'll look after him. Whatever doubts the superintendent may have harbored yet of the fair engineer's nerve and skill were plainly removed when Sylvia returned from an inner room after an absence of scarcely 60 seconds. Well, I'll be... An indomitable courage was stamped upon her handsome features and she bore herself with the firm, subdued mien of one who knows the gravity of her task, yet has faith in herself for its performance. One of her husband's caps was drawn tightly over her thick hair. She had slipped into a short walking skirt and as she advanced, she calmly but swiftly buttoned her jacket. Without hesitation, she stepped to the bedside and kissed her husband. Be brave, girl. You've got to make 75 miles an hour, or better. But you've got the machine to do it with. Give her her head on all the grades except Four Mile Creek. Don't be afraid, and give her a little sand on Beech Tree Hill. Goodbye, and God keep you. As Sylvia stood beneath the great black hulk of iron and steel which drew the overland, compared with which her husband's little local engine was but a toy, and glanced down the long line of mail, express, and sleeping cars laden with human freight, her heart almost failed her again. The mighty boiler towered high above her in the darkness like the body of some horrible antediluvian monster, and the steam rushed angrily from the dome as though the great animal were fretting under an unaccountable delay and longed to be off again on the wings of the wind, rending the tempest with its iron snout and awakening the sleeping hills and hollows 
with its hoarse shriek. You're a brave little woman. She heard the superintendent saying at the cab step, Don't lose your nerve, but make time. Whatever else you do, every minute you make up is money in the company's pocket, and they won't forget it. Besides, we've got a big gun on board, and I want you to show him that a little thing like this don't frustrate us any. If you draw into Stockton on time, I'll add $500 to that check. Remember that. And he lifted her up to the cab. The fireman, a young Irishman, stared at Sylvia as she stepped into the cab as though she were a banshee. But she made no explanations, and after a glance at the steam and water gauges, climbed up to the engineer's high seat. The hand she laid upon the throttle lever trembled slightly as well it might. The huge iron horse quivered and stiffened, as if bracing itself for its task. Noiselessly and imperceptibly it moved ahead, expelled one mighty breath, then another and another, quicker and quicker, shorter and shorter, until its respirations were lost in one continuous flow of steam. The overland was once more underway. The locomotive responded to Sylvia's touch with an alacrity which seemed almost human, and which, familiar as though she was with the work, thrilled her through and through. She glanced at the timetable. They were 12 minutes behind time. The 20 miles between the junction and Grafton lay in a straight, level line. Sylvia determined to use it to good purpose and to harden herself at once, as indeed she must, to the dizzy speed required by the inexorable schedule. She threw the throttle wide open and pushed the reverse lever into the last notch. The great machine seemed suddenly animated with a demonic energy, and soon they were shooting through the black, storm-beaten night like an avenging bolt from the hand of a colossal god. The headlight, so dazzling from in front, so insufficient from behind, danced feebly ahead upon the driving cloud of snow. That was all. The track was illuminated for scarcely 50 feet, and the night yawned beyond like some engulfing abyss. Sylvia momentarily closed her eyes and prayed that no unfortunate creature, human or brute, might wander that night between the rails. The fireman danced attendance on the fire, watching his heat and water as jealously as a doctor might watch the pulse of a fever patient. Now the furnace door was closed, now it hung on its latch, now it was closed again, and now, when the ravenous maw within cried for more coal, it was flung wide open lighting the driving cloud of steam and smoke above with a spectral glare. Sylvia worked with the fireman with a fine intelligence which only the initiated could understand, for an engine is a steed whose speed depends upon its driver. She opened or closed the injector to economize heat and water and eased the steam when it could be spared. Thus, together, they coaxed, cajoled, threatened, and goaded the wheeled monster until, like a veritable thing of life, it seemed to strain every nerve to do their bidding and whirled them faster and faster. Yet, as they flashed through Grafton, scarcely distinguishable in the darkness and the storm, they were still ten minutes behind time. Sylvia shut her lips tightly. If it was necessary to defy death on the curves and grades ahead, defy death she would. snow on her glass now cut off Sylvia's vision ahead. It mattered little, for her life and the lives of the sleeping passengers behind were in higher hands than hers, and only the all-seeing eye could see that night. Another train ahead, an open switch, a fallen rock or tree, one awful crash, and the engine would become a gridiron for her tender flesh, while the palatial cars behind, now so full of warmth and light and comfort, would suddenly be turned into mere shapeless heaps of death. And Sylvia cautiously opened her door a little 
held it firmly against the hurricane while she brushed off the snow. At the same time, she noticed that the headlight was burning dim. The headlight's covered with snow! She called to the fireman. The young fellow instantly drew his cap tighter, braced himself, and swung open his door. At the first cruel blast, the speed of which was that of the gale added to that of the train, he closed his eyes and held his breath. Then, taking his life in his hands, he slipped out upon the wet, treacherous running board of the pitching locomotive, made his way forward, and cleared the glass. Sylvia waited with bated breath until his head appeared in the door again. Fire up, please, she exclaimed nervously, for the steam had fallen off a pound. As the twinkling street lamps of Nancyville came into view, Sylvia drew a long glass. There was no tuneful reverberation among the hills that night, for the wind, like some ferocious beast of prey, pounced upon the sound and throttled it in the teeth of the whistle. The foxes shopped in Nancyville. They could shop 50 miles from home as easily as 50 rods, and the town, by comparison with Valley Junction, was beginning to seem like a little city to Sylvia. But tonight, sitting at the helm of that transcontinental train, which burst upon the town like a cyclone with a shriek and a roar and then was gone all again in a breath, she scarcely recognized the place. It seemed little and rural and mean to her, a mere eddy in the world's great current. One third of the 149 miles was now gone, and still the overland was ten minutes behind, and it seemed as if no human power could make up the time. They were winding through the Tallulah Hills, where the road was as crooked as a serpent's trail. The engine jerked viciously from side to side, as if angrily resenting the pitiless goading from behind, and twice Sylvia was nearly thrown from her seat. The wheels savagely ground the rails at every curve, and it made them shriek in agony. One side of the engine first mounted upward like a ship upon a wave, then suddenly sank as if engulfed. One instant Sylvia was lifted high above her fireman, the next dropped far below him. Yet she dared not slacken speed. The cry of time, time, time was dinned into her ears with every stroke of the piston. Her train was but one wheel, nay, but one cog of one wheel, in the vast and complicated machine of transportation. Yet one slip of that cog would rudely jar the whole delicate mechanism from coast to coast. Indeed, in Sylvia's excited fancy, the spirit of worldwide commercialism seemed riding on the gale above her, like Odin of old in the Wild Hunt, urging her on and on. Something of all this was in the mind of the fireman, too, in a simpler way. And when he glanced at his gentle superior from time to time, as she clung desperately to the armrest with one hand and clutched the reverse lever with the other, with white, set face, but firm mouth and fearless eye, his blue eyes flashed with a chivalric fire. Sylvia made out ahead the glowing headlight of the eastbound train, sidetracked and waiting for the belated overland, her engineering conductor, doubtless, fuming and fretting. For the first time during the run, Sylvia allowed a morbid, nervous fear to take hold of her. Suppose the switch were open. She knew that it must be closed, but the sickening possibility presented itself over and over again with its train of horrors in the brief space of a few seconds. She held her breath and half closed her eyes as they thundered down upon the other train. And when the engine lurched a little as it struck the switch, her heart leaped into her mouth. The suspense was mercifully short, though, for in an instant, as it were, they were past the danger, past the town, and once more scouring the open country. In spite of the half-pipe of sand which she let run as they climbed Beech Tree Hill, the last of the Tallulahs, it seemed to Sylvia as if they would never reach the summit, and as if the locomotive had lost all its vim. Yet the speed was slow only by contrast, and in reality was terrific, 
and the tireless steed upon whose high haunch Sylvia was perched was doing the noblest work of the night. At last, though, the high level of the barren plains was gained, and for forty miles, which were reeled off in less than thirty minutes, they swept along like an albatross on the crest of a gale, smoothly and almost noiselessly. Sylvia suspected that the engine was doing no better right here than it did every night of the year, and that went on time. Yet when she glanced from the timetable to the clock, as they clicked over the switch points at Melrose with a force which seemed sufficient to snap them off like icicles, she was chagrined to discover that they were still eight minutes behind. They were now approaching the long, twelve-mile descent of Four Mile Creek, with a beautiful level stretch at the bottom through the Spirit River Valley. Sylvia came to a grim determination. Half a dozen times previously she had wondered, in her unfamiliarity with heavy trains and their magnificent speed, as if she were falling short of or exceeding the safety limit. And half a dozen times she had been on the point of appealing to the firemen. But her pride, even in that momentous crisis, had restrained her, and moreover the timetable, mutely urging her faster and faster, seemed to answer enough. But just before they struck the grade, the responsibility of her determination, contrary too to her husband's advice, seemed too much to bear alone. I'm going to let her have her head! She cried out in her distress. The fireman did not answer. Perhaps he did not hear. And setting her teeth, Sylvia assumed the grim burden alone. The ponderous locomotive fell over the brow of the hill with the throttle agape and the fire seething in her vitals with volcanic fury. Then she lowered her head like a maddened bull in his charge. A long, heavy train, sweeping down the sharp descent, might fitly have been likened to some winged dragon flying low to earth, so appallingly flight-like was the motion. It seemed to Sylvia as though they dropped down the grade as an airlight drops from heaven, silent, irresistible, awful, touched only by the circumambient air. All Sylvia's familiar methods of gauging speed were now at fault, for she believed that for the moment they were running two miles to every minute thought that a puny human hand, a woman's hand, could stay that grand momentum seemed wildly absurd, and as Sylvia, under the strange lassitude born of her deadly peril, relaxed her tense muscles and drowsily closed her eyes, she smiled with a ghastly humor at the trust of the sleeping passengers in her. She was rudely shaken out of her lethargy as the train struck a slight curve halfway down the grade. The locomotive shied like a frightened steed and shook in every iron muscle. The flanges shrieked against the rails, the cab swayed and cracked, and the very earth seemed to tremble. For a moment the startled girl was sure that they were upon the ties, or had at least lost a wheel. But it was only the terrible momentum lifting them momentarily from the track, and in a few seconds, though every second meant 150 feet, the fire-eating behemoth righted itself. Yet its beautiful equilibrium was gone, and as if abandoning itself to its driver's mad mood, the engine rolled and pitched and rose and fell like a waterlogged vessel in a storm. The bell, catching upon the motion, began to toll, and the dolorous sound, twisted into weird discord by the gale, fell upon the ears of the pallid engineer and fireman like the notes of a storm-tossed bellboy, sounding the knell of the doomed. The young fireman, who up to this time had maintained a stoical calm, suddenly sprang to the floor of the cab, the face torn by superstitious fear. What if she leaves the rails? He cried, but instantly recovering himself, he sprang back to his seat with the blood of shame on his cheeks. Am I running too fast? No one were behind time! He doggedly shouted back. As the train became smoother, the engine grew calmer, but its barred tongue licking up the flying space for many a minute before the momentum of that perilous descent was lost. As the roar of their passage over the long bridge spanning the Matank Twenty miles from Stockton died away. The fireman called out cheerily, On time, madam! 
His voice reached Sylvia's swimming ears faint and dis distant as she nodded dizzily on her seat, bracing herself against the reverse lever. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the general superintendent's private car, at the extreme rear of the train, a party of men still sat up, smoking their Havanas and sipping their wine. One member of this party was the Big Gun, mentioned to Sylvia by the general superintendent, the president of the Mississippi Valley, Omaha, and Western Railway, who was a large man with luxuriant snow-white hair, and though his face was benevolent, even paternal, every line of it betrayed the inflexible will which had lifted its owner from the roof of a freight car to the presidential chair of the Great Road. Mr. Howard, the general superintendent, was regaling the party with an account of his experience in securing a substitute engineer at Valley Junction. For reasons afterwards divulged, he suppressed, though, the most startling feature of his story, namely the sex of the engine runner he had secured. But he compensated his heroes for this omission with a most dramatic account of the heroism of the sick man, whom he unblushingly represented as having risen from his bed and taken charge of the engine. Mr. Staniford, the distinguished guest, listened quietly until Howard was done. Charlie, you are a heartless wretch, he observed, smiling. And when Howard protested, with a twinkle in his eye, that there was no other way, the president added, If it had been on my road, I should have held the train all night rather than drag a sick man from his bed. We all know how many trains are held all night on your road, Stanford. Do you happen to remember the story of an ambitious young engineer who picked himself up out of a wreck with a broken arm and stepped into a new engine and pulled his train through to the end of the run? I was young then and working for glory. No superintendent ordered me to do it, or I should probably have refused. These engineers are a heroic set. Charlie, I sometimes think we don't always do them justice. I'll do this one justice. Party dropped off to bed one by one. The general superintendent himself finally rose and looked at his watch. As he turned and made his way forward, his careless expression gave way to one of concern. His mind was evidently on the gentle engine runner. Possibly he had recurring doubts of her skill and courage, but perhaps the fact that he had daughters of his own gave his thought, as much as anything else, a graver turn. Three cars ahead, he met the conductor, who also seemed a little nervous, and they talked together for some moments. Fast, but not too fast, Dawkins. What I call a high safety. The train, at the time, was snapping around the choppy curves in the Tallulah Hills like the flash of a whip, and the two men had difficulty keeping their feet. Fearful in the cab, eh? Nothing equal to it, sir. Howard started back toward the private car about the time the train struck Beech Tree Hill. He paused in a vestibule, opened the door, and laid his practiced ear to the din outside. Then he gently closed the door, as if to slam it might break the spell, and complacently smiled. When the train reached the level of barren plains, and the sleepers ceased their swaying and settled down to a smooth, straightaway motion, that sure annunciator of high speed, the superintendent rubbed his palms together, very much like a man shaking hands with himself. Hmm. When he got back to his car, he found Mr. Staniford still up, smoking, and leaning back in the luxurious seat with half-closed eyes. Staniford motioned Howard to sit down beside him and laid his hand familiarly on the latter's knee. Confound you, Charlie. You've got that sick engineer on my heart now, with your inflammatory descriptions for which you probably drew largely on your imagination. I've been sitting here thinking about him now. Confess, you exaggerated matters a little. Well, I did in one respect, but in another, I fell short. Staniford, I've got the best railroad story to give the papers that has been brought out in years. And if I don't get several thousand dollars worth of free advertising out of it, my name isn't C.W. Howard. And the best of it, 
it's the gospel truth. Well, let's have it. Well, between you and me, that man Fox was a mighty sick man. Wait Too a minute. To- Did you say Fox? Yes. What's his first name? Well, I don't know. He's a tall, smooth-faced fella with uh, dark hair and eyes. Rather intelligent looking. What do you know about him? Um, he's a comparatively new man with us. Uh, I don't know that I know him, but if he's the man I have in mind, he's all right. Well, go on. He ever run on your road? Yes, yes. That's got nothing to do with it. Just go on. Well, he was altogether too sick to pull a plug, but it seems that his wife was been in the habit of riding with him and knows the road and an engine as well as he does. And to come to the point, and this is my story, which I didn't tell the boys for the sake of their nerves, the Overland at this moment is in the hands of a girl, sir. Fox's wife. It seemed a long time before either man spoke again. Howard stared in blank amazement at the pallid face of the president, unable to understand the old railroader's agitation, and unwilling to attribute it to fear of being in the hands of an engineer who might lose her head. Then Stanifer took the other's hand and held it in an iron grip. Charlie, it's my own little baby girl. Howard was familiar with the story of the elopement of Staniford's daughter with one of the MVO and W engineers, and the situation flashed over him in an instant. After a moment, during which, as he afterwards confessed, he could not keep his mind off the added sensation this new fact would give his advertising story, he said enthusiastically, She's a heroine, Staniford, and worthy of her father. During the perilous descent of Four Mile Creek, a private car rocked like a cradle, cracked and snapped in every point. Staniford hung helplessly to Howard's hands, with the tears trickling down his cheeks. When the bottom was at last reached and the danger was over, the danger at the front, the president drew his handkerchief and wiped the great drops of sweat from his brow. The ex-engineer knew the agony through which his child had passed. The operator at Valley Junction had flashed the news along the wire, and when the Overland steamed up to the Union Depot in Stockton at 107, 20 seconds ahead of time, a curious and enthusiastic throng of layover passengers and railroad men pressed around the engine. When Sylvia appeared in the gangway, her glorious sun-kissed hair glistening with melted snow and her pale face streaked with soot, the generous crowd burst into yells of applause. The husky old veteran runner who was to take the girl's place stepped forward by virtue of his office, as it were, and lifted Sylvia down. For a moment she reeled, partly from faintness, partly from the sickness caused by the pitching of the locomotive. Then she saw, pushing unceremoniously through the throng, the general superintendent and, she started and looked again, her father. When President Staniford, struggling to control his emotion, clasped his daughter to his bosom, her overstrained nerves gave way under the double excitement and laying her head wearily upon his shoulder, and with her hands upon his neck, she began to cry in a choked, pitiful little way. Oh, Papa, call me your dear little redhead once more. That was our 3D radio production starring Ani Berkshire of Night Run of the Overland. We also had uh, myself was in there and uh, David Chelsea was doing the narration and a couple other folks 
where it slipped in our cast uh, of uh, this nice railroad adventure. You're listening to Gremlin Time. Uh, let's see, uh, just to kind of keep in our railway-themed uh, program, let's uh, put one of my favorite episodes of the great I Love a Mystery series on that takes place uh, opening in the rail yards as Jack, Doc, and Reggie are trying to get out of some trouble that they got into in Los Angeles. So let's uh, listen to Chapter 1 of Barrier Dead, Arizona. Well, you see what you got us into? Now, Jack, you couldn't hardly say it is all my fault. I could hardly say it was all your fault. Sure, I reckon you could say it all right. Move over, Reggie, so as I can squat. Be quiet. Go ahead and squat. You knew as well as I did that the police were looking for us. Yeah, I know. And you knew that if they found us, they intended holding us as material witnesses in the Martin murder cases. Yeah. And you knew that it might be months before we'd be free. But, Jack, after what happened to Cherry and Faye, you wrote a full report on the whole business. We all signed our names to it. Yes, but I didn't say who the murderer was. But you said the killer was dead. The police weren't satisfied with that, as you quite well know. Yeah. They wanted you to say right out that it was Joe that killed the chauffeur, and it is Cherry who killed Joe. Why didn't you say? Because we went to the Martin house to protect Grandmother Martin's interests. Her chief interest was to keep the Martin name unsullied. Besides, Faye and Hope are going to get well. Why brand them for life as sisters of a killer? And so the police were after us to make us tell what we hadn't told. Well, we were doing all right. We could have stayed right here as long as we'd wanted to. Never been found. But what do you have to do, Doc? Well, doggone it, Jack. You have to get yourself mixed up in a drifting poker game. But I was bored. So you were bored. That's right, I was bored. So what do you do? Well, I hunts me up a bunch of hombres and gets myself into a poker game. You take the $25,000 reward money and lose the works. What you mean, I lose the works? Well, you did, didn't you? Well, I got it back, didn't I? Did I say you didn't? Well, you act like I didn't. That 25,000 potatoes is in the money belt slung around your middle, and here you are making more fuss. Yes, and... but, Doc, that isn't the idea. Then what is the idea, I want to know? You lost the money in a poker game, and then what do you do? You throw a gun on the game and take it back again. Well, of course I took it back again when I found out the game was crooked. How do you know it was crooked? Oh, that's just plain silly. I still want to know how you knew it was crooked. Because when Doc Long loses 25 grand in a poker game, it's got to be crooked. That's no reason. Well, it's reason enough for me. So now we're not only wanted by the police as witnesses in the Martin case, but you're wanted for robbery with a gun. By the way, where'd you get the gun? Well, one I picked up around Martin House. Well, where is it now? I made a present of it to the Chinese who runs the laundry around the corner from where we is living. Oh, but, Doc, if the police ever find it on him, he'll be in an awful hole. Well, that's what he gets for shrinking my underdrawers. <laughs> Very funny. You've not only got the police buzzing around our ears, but you've got the gang that was backing that poker game out looking for us with Tommy guns. And we're running away. You bet we're running away. Well, I don't like it. You brought it on yourself. Well, it ain't that I mind hopping freights out of town. That's kind of different, and I like things that's different. But what makes me mad is us up and running away from a bunch of tin-horned bandits. Quiet, Jack. That belly well makes my gorge rise, too. Where's your sense? We can keep out of the way of the police so we can fight the gangsters. But you know as well as I do that we can't do both. This town's too hot, and the quicker we get out of it, the better for everybody. Well, it ain't my way. It's mine. Well, I mean, Jack, if we could get just one fast round in with the gang before we go, just to make them understand we're not leaving because we're afraid of them. Now, you're talking, Reggie. No. And I could slip uptown, and I know where we could find some of them. No. Yeah. I reckon when Jack says no, that's all there is to it, Reg. Apparently. Uh, what time is this freight that we're catching pull out? I don't know. And we're just sitting here in this boxcar until it does? Yes. It's sure a nice night for dirty work. Man, is it foggy. Mm, bloody well have to keep our eyes peeled. 
Fate could slip by us in this soup and we'd never even know it. You know what makes me so blame mad about this? What's that? Well, here we come down to Hollywood for no other reason than to spend 25,000 bucks. Did we spend it? Not one cent. Not one doggone cent. First we get mixed up in the Martin murders and now we got to sneak out of town. I swear to my grandma, it, it's harder to spend 25 grand. Shut up. Huh? What's the matter? Somebody outside the car. Yeah. Get down behind those bales of hay. Right on. Well, probably just one of the yard bulls. I don't care who it is. We don't want to be seen. Yeah. Are you sure, Jack? I don't hear anything. Yeah, there's somebody out there, so keep still. Hey, I see a flashlight. Well, hold it. Keep down. Nothing in this car but three, four bales of straw. Jack, shut up, you fool. But Jack, I know that feller's voice. He's one of the gang. What? I'm a spank hypnosis if he ain't. He flashed his light in here. He was looking for something, all right. Of course he was. Looking for us. That's great. Huh? Well, what do you mean, that's great? I mean, if the gang is that anxious to find us, they're going to be watching every freight that leaves these yards. But look here. Then maybe we'll have a go at them after all, huh, Doc? Now you're talking. How about us piling out of here right now? Listen, you two, you're playing with dynamite. Now let it alone. But Jack, this isn't like you. Yeah, what's the matter, you fella? You act to me like you got your running shoes on. I'm telling you, if you don't get out of this town quick, we're going to end up in jail or in a slab at the morgue. You call that any way to talk? And another thing, I don't want anybody to see us climb up on that freight. You mean they'll follow us out of town? What about it, Doc? Yeah, you got something there. For 25,000 armed men, them mugs would follow us to kingdom come. Exactly. Of course, I hope they do. I'm still mad about them euchre and me into a sucker poker game. Well, forget your man. I don't want to be trailed all over the country. Hold it. What's the matter, Neil? They're back. Hot dog. Listen. All right. Climb in, boys. It's him again. Shut up. Tony, your lookout. Keep a lookout for the yard bulls. Give me a foot up and then close the door. Close the door? Shut up. All right, Tony. <laughs> Shut the door. All right, you rats. Come on out. No use stalling. We know you're in here. There's five of us and only three of you, and we've come to do a job. So come on out and get it. You mean there's only five of you? Well, hello, Doc Law. Hello, Lefty. Honest, is that all you brung along, five? That's plenty. Come on out. Well, say we do come out. What then? Use your imagination. I ain't got much. Well, I can promise you it'll make nice, juicy reading on the front page of your hometown newspaper. And, man, do I love getting my name on the front page of the newspaper. Quit stalling. What's the matter with the rest of your outfit? Are they deep and dumb? They ain't here to talk. Uh-huh. They're here for something, oh, I bet. Kind of bets you make don't mean much. Says which? You made the biggest mistake of your life when you held up that poker game. We've come to get that 25 grand and teach you better manners. Well, how about beginning? How about starting out by turning on your flashlight? No flashlights. This night's work's going to be done in the dark. And it's too bad you can't do a little gun shooting, ain't it? Yeah? Yeah. On account of you're going to need them. But you dasn't on account of that every, every bull in this yard would be down on you. Knives are better for this kind of a job anyway. Yeah, knives, huh? All right, you've stalled long enough. Now, come on out. Oh, we ain't quite ready yet. You're as ready as you'll ever be. Not quite. You see, my two partners is kind of maneuvering into position. What's that? Yeah. You see, all the time that we've been a-gassing, Jack and Reggie have been crawling around back of you so as we can attack front and back and kind of boil you up. You're crazy. Pete, Johnny. You ready, Jack? Let's go. Uh, Ooh, yeah, let's go. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. 
much fun. <laughs> Anybody hurt? Oh, never mind that. Count the bodies. See if we got them all. Oh, here, here. Well, wait a minute, Jack. I got left his flashlight. Uh, here, here you are. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, that's all. And it's nice and mess of busted noses <laughs> I ever about seen. <laughs> what do we do now, Jack? We get that lookout bird outside the car. Well, that means we got to get this door open. Give me a hand, Reg. Right. Uh, just a minute. When you get the door open, let me do the talking. Okay. Come on, Reg. Open her up. No. That you, Letty? Yeah, I'm coming down. Sure didn't take you long to do the job, eh? No, it didn't, did it? Here's a little present for you. Get him, Jack. Yes, come on down. Help me throw him into the car. Yeah. Come on, Reggie. Right on. Let me give you a hand, Jack. I'll grab hold. Up. Yeah. All right, now push the door shut. All right. Let me get my shoe. Wait, listen. Never mind the door. Here comes the freight. Come on, get over the tracks. Hey, look out. We don't get separated in the fall. There's a headlight. She's moving slow. I say, this ought to do it. Yes, keep out of the headlight. We don't want the train crew to see us. Let the engine get by and then start looking for an open boxcar. Here she comes. Jack, here's an open box car. Run for it. Get in. Hey, hurry. She's picking up speed. Uh, make it, Reggie. I don't know. Yeah. Give me a hand, Jack. Up uh, with you. Uh, yeah, thanks. Okay, Doc. Give me a lift. Up yeah. uh, with you. Uh, we. And here we are. So here you are. Hey. I say. Hey, who, who said that? I say it. Why not? Jack, there's a girl in this boxcar. Why not? Doggone female riding a freight train. Yes, I am female. A dangerous female. So watch out. And that's our exciting cliffhanger for our first chapter in this I Love a Mystery uh, adventure. Mercedes McCambridge leaping in there at the last minute to uh, add a little spicy danger to our story. I love how the the sounds of them running next to the train. Come on, I'll get you up here. And then the sound effects guys are working it. It's just just a great piece of uh, radio theater. Uh, I Love a Mystery, uh, one of the great shows. You can find it on um, the Internet radio archive or the internet archive on the radio section along with all sorts of other great shows so uh, this has been gremlin time we had uh, robert jefferson uh, reading uh, the railway guide we had the great annie berkshire in uh, night run of the overland along with our 3d radio cast featuring david chelsea uh this has been uh, this is fortunato i'll be back again next month with s- uh, some more gremlin time but let's end things with a a nice, well, a nice railway song. This is Jerry Reed. I'm riding on in the city of New Orleans, the Illinois Central Monday morning rail. 
Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors, twenty-five sacks of me All along the southbound Odyssey The train rolls out of Kankakee And rolls along past houses, farms and fields Passing trains that have no names Graveyards full of old black men And graveyards full of rusty old automobiles Well, good morning, America, how are you? Say, don't you know me, I'm your native son I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans And I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done Portland, Oregon. Hey, Michael here. I'm with the Tin Can Phone Podcast, a radio show where you can hear about the influence incarceration has straight from the source. We tell you the story from the inside out. So make sure to check us out on KBOO Community Radio every first Tuesday at 10 a.m. Did you know that KBOO is streaming live on the web? Well, you do now. Just type www.kboo.fm, click on Listen Live, and you've got us. Just another example of how KBOO 90.7 FM Portland works for you. It's your community radio. You're tuned in to listener-supported community radio, KBOO Portland. Stay tuned as we bring you another in the 